we are picking up this semester of study with the Israelites right after they celebrated their salvation. In the midst of their slavery, they cried out to the Lord, and he moved on their behalf. He sent a deliverer, he redeemed them by the blood of the Passover lamb, and he saved them from the power of their enemy as they crossed through the Red Sea. And rightfully so, they had stopped to praise him for everything he did for them. But almost immediately, they're on the move. God is leading them away from the land of their slavery. But more importantly, he is moving them toward someplace. The fact that the story continues communicates something to us. If salvation were the end of the story, we could have just stopped at the Passover, or the Red Sea crossing, or the celebration. But no, the story continues because God's people have not yet reached their destination. Like the Israelites, even upon our salvation, we have not yet reached our spiritual destination. This reminds us that the Exodus story is our story too, and that that story does not end with salvation. Last semester, we learned so much about the process of salvation, what it looks like, and the steps involved. This semester, we're going to learn about a different process, a process that comes after our salvation, and that is the process of sanctification. Sanctification can be defined as conformity of the heart and the life to the will of God. Our heart aligned with God's will, and the way we live our lives aligned with God's will. In plain English, sanctification is the process where we slowly but surely begin to think and act more and more like God would have us think and act. That's what God wants for his people after their salvation. So we see that God's great act of redemption on behalf of his people doesn't really center on what he has freed them from, but rather on what he is leading them to. In this week of study, we saw God leading his people to trust. He used the trials and the tests to teach them that he can and should be trusted, and also what it looks like to trust him. My parents have a piece of artwork they got when they were in Israel. In absolutely beautiful handwriting, the artist wrote the entire book of Ruth. But what makes this piece so impactful is that when you zoom out, you see that the words of the book of Ruth were used to compose a painting of Ruth. In essence, the artist was able to incorporate two very different perspectives into one piece of artwork. In many ways, the Bible, especially the genre of historical narrative, is like this. On the one hand, we can zoom in and look at the stories from the perspective of the people involved, 
We can look to empathize with their fears and their situation. We can look to um, try to extract lessons for our own lives. But we also have the ability to zoom out, to look at the stories from and see what they teach us about God, his plans, his purposes. I think we will learn the most this week if, like this artist, we attempt to incorporate these two very different perspectives into our thinking. So we're going to walk through the text first zoomed out. We're going to focus on what we learn about God, his ways, his plans, his purposes. And then, only after we've done that, will we zoom in and see what we can learn about human nature in general and what lessons we can apply to our own lives. This week's passage had four general tests. The bitter water, lack of food, lack of water, and the attack by the Amalekites. So let's dive into test number one, bitter water. I'll start reading in Exodus 15:22. Then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Marah, but they couldn't drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. That is why it was named Marah. The people grumbled to Moses, what are we going to drink? So he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree. When he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. The Lord made a statute and an ordinance for them at Marah and he tested them there. He said, if you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, pay attention to his commands and keep all his statutes. I will not inflict on you any of the illnesses that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 date palms, and they camped there by the water. When we read this account, focused on God, we immediately see how very easy it is for him to solve this problem. Throw this tree in the water. And how quickly he can move them from a dire situation to a place of plenty. So it almost seems like God uses this test to get their attention so that he can communicate something else to them. Carefully obey the Lord your God. Do what is right in his sight. Pay attention to his commands. Keep all his statutes. Look at all the descriptive language. God does not just say, if you will obey me. It's as though he's trying to conjure up for them an image of them searching for what he wants. Not like it's just some sort of side thought. This language commands statutes. This is legal language. So the focus seems to be that God wants his people to be focused on his law. Those commands that are applicable to all people all the time. Do what is right in his sight. This implies that the people for any given situation, based on their knowledge of God, his ways, his law, should look to discern what he would have them do. Not really all that easy of a process, right? Would take some effort. 
we have the entire Bible, and it is full of information about God. It is also full of commands from God, things he says to do or not do. But we also get to see how God reacts to situations throughout the Bible. We see what people did and what God said should be done for that. So if we spend time in God's word, reading it and rereading it, over time we should gain the ability to discern what it is God would want us to do, how, what he would think of a situation that we encounter. And it seems like that's what God actually wants for us after our salvation as well. One of God's purposes for us after our salvation is for us to grow in our knowledge of him and his law, knowing it and putting it into practice in our lives. As we are sanctified, we grow in knowing and living by God's standards, his law. So the people's part is to live in a way that is pleasing to God. And God promises in return that he will not inflict any illnesses on them that he inflicted on the Egyptians. This is a hard sentence to read isn't it? I mean, probably none of us really want to think of God as one that inflicts illnesses. But a plain reading of the text seems to imply that God does, in fact, at least at times, inflict illness. And this is not the only place in scripture where we see this concept. The same thought is in many books of the Bible. Here are just three places. Job 5.18, for he wounds, but he also bandages. He strikes, but his hands also heal. Deuteronomy 32.39, there is no God but me. I bring death and I give life. I wound and I heal. Hosea 6.1, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us and he will heal us. He has wounded us and he will bind up our wounds. God does inflict illness. But scripture is clear that God has a good purpose for everything he does. He gets no enjoyment out of this. Instead, what he's trying to do is produce something good in his people. And it often has to do with this process we've been talking about tonight, sanctification. I think it's also important to note what this does not say. It doesn't say that God inflicts every illness. We live in a fallen world and the implications of that are far-reaching. We often have to live with the consequences of other people's decisions. So, although it is possible that the illnesses that we live with are a result of our own actions, we cannot jump to the conclusion that every illness is caused by something that we or someone else has done. Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 9, when the disciples asked him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. 
Sometimes our illnesses are a direct result of our actions, and sometimes they are not. But regardless, we can trust that God will use everything for our good and for our sanctification. After God gives this conditional promise, he declares something about himself. I am the Lord who heals you. It is tempting to think of healing only in physical terms. But we saw in our homework that there are all different kinds of healing, physical, psychological, emotional. God even promises to heal unfaithfulness. About six years ago, I was going through a very hard pregnancy that ultimately resulted in a stillbirth. And not too long after that stillbirth, God impressed this verse on my heart. I am the Lord who heals you. I will be perfectly honest. I was not in a good place at all. And in my mind, the death of the baby was entirely in God's hands. I remember thinking to myself, so let me get this straight. You're going to heal me of something you did to me. What a waste of pain. And that still small voice whispered to me, what if you don't even know what you need to be healed of? And that voice was true. I was completely oblivious to my biggest healing need. And I see in retrospect that God healed me of things like ungratefulness, a lack of true worship in my life. And he produced in me a trust that I did not have before that and I could not produce in myself. Now, I automatically trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding. The point here is that God is the only one that truly knows what healing we need. And he's the only one that knows what it will take to bring it about in our lives. So we can trust him. We can trust him even with those situations that don't turn out the way that we wanted them to. That he is still going to produce something good. Right after God meets their need and gives them this insight into his perspective, he leads them to a place of rest and respite where all of their needs are abundantly met. But they don't stay there very long, maybe about a month. Then God leads them to test number two, hunger. Follow along with me starting in Exodus 16, 2. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. Right away, the people come to another 
desperate situation. No food. Again, we see that God will easily meet their need. And again, we see that he uses this as an opportunity to communicate something entirely different to them. He wants to see if they will follow his instructions. Whereas the last test talked more about a general way of life, God's commands and his statutes for everyone. The language here, instructions, seems to indicate something a bit more personalized. Instructions that could differ from day to day, group to group, person to person. Like when we ask the Lord about a certain situation and he shows us what we should do. This teaches us that one of God's purposes for us after our salvation, in addition to growing into putting his, our lives in lining them up with his standards, is also for us to grow in hearing his voice and responding, following his instructions. As we are sanctified, we grow in following God's instructions to us. Continue in verse 13. So at evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew all around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. Moses told them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each person needs to eat. You may take two quarts per individual, according to the number of people each of you has in his tent. So the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot, some a little. When they measured it by quarts, the person who had gathered a lot had no surplus, and the person who gathered a little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. Moses said to them, no one is to let any of it remain until morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. They gathered it every morning. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, four quarts apiece, and all the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He told them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil. Set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. So they set it aside until morning as Moses commanded, and it didn't stink or have maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you won't find any in the field. For six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Yet, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they didn't find any. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he will give you two days' worth of bread. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So along with God's provision of the manna, he also gives some commands, and one of them has to do with Sabbath. This is the first time in Scripture we see the word Sabbath. Even though the concept was established at creation when God himself rested on the seventh day. This semester, almost Every week of our study will have information or commands related to Sabbath. So it is a very important topic. However, 
Notice here, the, to the topic is just introduced. Elsewhere in scripture, we learn that the first day of the week is Sunday. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, the people are to gather one day's worth of food, only one day. Then on the sixth day, the day before the Sabbath, which would be Friday, the people are to gather two days worth of bread, manna. And on the seventh day, Saturday, there will be no, nothing provided by God. This shows us pretty clearly that God's provision works the way God decides. God's provision works the way God decides. It is emphasized that the Sabbath is a command, but the Sabbath is also a gift. These former slaves would not have had a day of complete rest each week from their former masters. Look at what we were told in Exodus chapter 1 about their former lives. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor. What a big contrast between service to God and service to their former masters. I know it might be a little tempting to think, oh, that's interesting, but maybe not all that applicable to us. We're not slaves. Or are we? Is it maybe possible that we have made ourselves willing slaves to things like our schedules? or our to-do lists, that we couldn't possibly obey the Lord and take a whole day of complete rest because how could we possibly get everything done? Service to God is characterized by work and rest. And we will get to see much more about this this, week, this semester as we study. God drew my attention to Sabbath several years ago, and I have struggled for several years to put it into practice in my life. God has taught me so much about what I am allowing myself to be enslaved to. And more importantly, what it looks like to actually depend on him. I'm a long way from where I want to be on Sabbath, but I can tell you that this double portion that God provides on the sixth day, I have absolutely experienced. I experience it every week. I plan for it. I look forward to it. I can get almost anything done that I try to get done on Friday. It's my most productive day of the week. I definitely get twice as much done. So I can stand here and tell you tonight that Sabbath is an open invitation to each and every one of us. Will we trust God by aligning ourselves with his provision? I used to just read over Sabbath, think it was interesting. And now I see it like this treasure that I didn't even know was for me, 
And it makes me want to know what other treasures God has in his word, what other open invitations he has for us, just waiting to be discovered. We all want to be led by God. So the challenge for us is going to be to align ourselves with his provision so that we can receive it. Instead of trying to demand what we think we need whenever it's convenient for us. In my house, we are currently working on a similar topic. It is, mom makes one dinner. That dinner is whatever mom decides. You don't want what mom made for dinner? That's fine. I'm not going to force you to eat it. You are free to scrounge up whatever you can find within reason. Dinner is also served whenever mom decides to serve it. You're not hungry when mom serves dinner? That's fine. I'm not going to force you to eat it. But I can't guarantee that it's going to be there when you decide you want it. If we want God's provision, we have to take what he provides when he provides it. Or we can try to provide for ourselves. The choice is ours. As we are sanctified, we grow in receiving God's provision when and how he provides. Let's pick back up in verse 32. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Two quarts of it, the manna, are to be preserved throughout your generations so that you may see the bread I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. The focus here is remembrance. God wants his people to do something so that they will remember. Scripture is full of commands from God to his people telling them to remember. So I think it's pretty safe to assume that it is actually our tendency to forget. We should expect that remembering is going to take some effort or some action on our part. As we are sanctified, we grow in actively remembering, calling to mind what God has done for us. Verse 35. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years. Until they came to an inhabited land, they ate manna until they reached the border of the land of Canaan. In our homework, we looked at John chapter 6 and saw that Jesus compared himself to the manna. God's provision of the manna teaches us about God's ultimate provision through his son, Jesus Christ. Here are just a couple comparisons. God gave the manna from heaven, and God gave Jesus Christ from heaven. The manna enabled physical life, 
Without the manna, the people would have died physically. Jesus Christ enables spiritual life. Without him, we die spiritually. This is not the first time that we have seen bread used as a symbol for Jesus Christ. Last semester, we learned about a different type of bread, unleavened bread, and it also taught us about Jesus Christ. Joshua 5, 11 and 12 tells us the exact day that the manna stopped. It tells us that it stopped two days after Passover. Two days after Passover is during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I think God taking the care to tell us that maybe so that we link these two symbols together, if we had not already. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the people were to eat unleavened bread each day during the duration of the feast. Here, the people are to eat manna each day for the duration of their time in the wilderness. The commands related to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they taught us about sinlessness. First and foremost, that Jesus Christ is the sinless Son of God, but also that we, as his followers, are to follow him and remove sin from our lives. We're to become more and more like him. And if we add what we learn from the manna, we see how we do that. We do that by depending on him, by taking him in daily. As we are sanctified, we grow in depending on God daily. As chapter 17 opens, the Israelites again move on and encounter test number three. No water. Read with me starting in Exodus 17:2. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me? Moses replied to them, why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while they will stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to stand there in front of the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? The people tested God by questioning his presence. Are you even there? And God has Moses take the staff. This is the same staff that he used to strike the Nile and make it undrinkable for the Egyptians. It's now used to strike the rock and produce drinkable water for the Israelites. God is saying, yes, I'm among you, and yes, I'm the one providing for you. We saw in our homework that this event, water from a rock, also 
points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the spiritual rock that gives us spiritual drink to anyone that comes to him. He gives eternal life through the Holy Spirit. Over these last three tests, we have seen that God has done so much to prove, to show to the people that he will provide for them, that he can be trusted. He has provided in natural ways. Throw a stick in the water to make it drinkable, have quail sort of by happenstance fly into the camp, and he has provided in clearly supernatural ways, raining manna from heaven, water from a rock. All of these provisions, whether natural or supernatural, are all God's provision for his people. As we are sanctified, we are going to grow in recognizing and accepting God's provision, which comes in many forms and varied ways. As we continue, we come to the fourth test this week. Let's pick up in Exodus 17, 8. At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. We saw last semester that when the Israelites left Egypt, God did not take them on the most direct path. He said, the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. Shortly thereafter, Pharaoh and the entire Egyptian army caught up with them. But even then, the people didn't have to fight. Moses told them, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. The Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet. But this time, the people have to fight. There are many passages in the New Testament that tell us that we must fight spiritual battles. This should be comforting to us because God knows when our faith is so frail that we couldn't possibly fight. But he doesn't seem to want to leave us there. As we are sanctified, we are going to learn to fight. So as we wrap up this week's text, Zoomed Out, I find it completely fascinating that so many of the accounts that we um, came across in this week's passage, the people grumbling for lack of food and water, quail coming into the camp, water from a rock, God giving victory in battle, bear remarkable resemblance to separate accounts, future to this, that happen in the books of Numbers and Joshua. In those future accounts, the Israelites act pretty much the same. But God is much, much, much more displeased with them. Here, he doesn't really seem to have very high expectations for his people. These tests have provided an opportunity for God to prove to the people 
that he can be trusted. And this teaches us something about sanctification as well. Sanctification is a process. As God proves himself trustworthy to us, he expects his people to actually trust him. Now, if we switch perspectives and we zoom in, we learn a lot about human nature from this week's text. One thing we see is that it is common for people, when confronted with trials, to panic, to lose perspective, and to question whether they can trust God. In fact, we see that left unchecked, these reactions get worse and worse. Test number one, it was just a little grumble. By test two, it had progressed, grumbling to lots and lots and lots of open, complaining, blaming, and accusing. And by test three, the people were like, is God even here? So what do we do about this? probably helpful to first just acknowledge that this is the process. If we don't do something, this is what will happen. It is the default position. I will tell you that I used to think that I had no power against this. I used to think that if I did not state my unfiltered thoughts or fears, that somehow I was being disingenuous or inauthentic or just plain fake. I vividly remember a particularly hard day driving in my car, so I decided to pray. But my, but my prayer was basically just a long list of all the things that I didn't like about my life at the moment. I thought that getting them off my chest was what I needed. So I listed everything. <laughs> and when I got the whole way through my list, I felt the exact same. So clearly I missed something. I went back through and I listed everything again. So finally, sort of out of desperation, I cry out to the Lord, why is this not helping? And that still small voice whispered to me, why don't you try listing all the things you're grateful for? You know, that actually did help. It helped because it gave me perspective. It put my problems into the right perspective. Scripture is clear. We must take our thoughts captive. We must test them and see if they are true or if they should be something else. And if they should be something else, we must replace them. The reality is that just as we are responsible for our actions, we're responsible for our thoughts and our reactions. So I think there are two major lessons for us from this week's text regarding how to face trials in our lives. The first thing we should do as we face trials and we notice ourselves sort of going down the panic route, is stop. Pursue perspective. 
we want to remind ourselves of the big picture. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us to run the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. We keep our eyes on Jesus by reminding ourselves that God has not forgotten about us or abandoned us, that he is there, actively present, and he is working on our faith. Remembering is key to perspective. We pursue perspective by calling to mind ways that God has proven to us personally, individually, that he can be trusted. For those of us that have been walking with the Lord a long time, we may have a long list, but even those of us that have not been walking with the Lord very long, we have ways that God has proven to us that he can be trusted, and we're responsible for remembering those. Next, we need to be intentional in our response. We want to respond rightly, pray and obey. Philippians 4, 6 says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. It's really a perfect recipe for how to respond to challenges in our lives. Don't worry or complain or grumble or test. Pray. And when we hear something from God, whether um, a passage comes to mind or a thought we need to be quick to obey because often God's provision comes through his instructions. We would be remiss if we didn't take the time tonight to actively apply these lessons to our lives. Hopefully you have some space somewhere in your study guide. I'm going to give you a few minutes to pursue perspective. I want you to call to mind ways that you know that God has protected you or provided for you over the course of your lifetime. Jot down anything that comes to mind, big, small, recent, or long past. Now, let's respond rightly. We are all facing challenges in our lives. Those things that we're worried about, that are keeping us up at night. Let's spend a couple minutes in prayer, inviting God into those situations, asking him for his wisdom, his guidance, his peace.
Father God, we love you and we praise you. You are the one true God, and you're good. Everything you do is good. You've saved us. You love us. You have good plans for us. Father, grow in us a trust in you. Help us to see the ways that you have provided for us. And give us the confidence that we know you will provide. I pray that you would lead us and guide us. That you would care for us. And I pray that you would help us to respond to the challenges and the trials in our lives in a way that is pleasing to you. That we would remember to pursue perspective. That we would remember to seek you in your face. Thank you for all you've done. I pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.